So Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. Go ahead and grab a Bible, flip on over there if you have one in your hands. If you need one, we have Bibles floating around the room. And if you don't have one at home, take that home. And then we'll always have scripture up on the screen for you. Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30 is where we find ourselves today. So I'm going to preach today a sermon like you have never heard before. The, the title of my sermon is Reasons You Might Want to Kill Jesus. <laughs> and so that's the sermon uh, this morning. It should be fun for everyone except for Jesus. And so um, it should be good. I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm really uh, just been moved by this passage this week. And that's what I do every week. I study and prepare. And Ryan does the same. And And just ask God to stir me up so that I can come and explain God's word to you. And we'll talk a little bit more about that actually as we go on throughout the course of this message. But the other day I introduced my kids to cassette tapes. Uh, I was digging in the basement trying to clean things out. And uh, I found a box of cassette tapes. And I I brought it upstairs and plopped it on the, the dining room table. And I said, okay kids, come here. And they said, what's that? And I said, this is how we used to listen to music when we were kids. And they're like, whoa, weird. <laughs> and, and, and it brought me back to sitting inside of my dad's 1968 uh, Plymouth Charger. That's the Dukes of Hazard car. He has the same deal. The same year, I was sitting in his car. And when he introduced me to, son, this is how I used to listen to music. He showed me the 8-track. I said, whoa, weird. I, I totally remember that. And, and so now it's my turn. And we're going through the tapes and checking out all this music. There are specifically songs that my wife used to sing at church, you know, when they'd have a track behind her, you know, instead of a band. Now we're, we got a band here. And so you guys did awesome, by the way, this morning. Didn't they do well? Yeah, and so, um, <laughs> so we're looking through all these songs. I said, okay, I think it's time to throw these tapes away. I don't think we're ever going to have you standing on stage, and I don't know, even know where to find a cassette player anymore. And, and I remember as a kid, I had all these cassette tapes like um, TLC, Lisa Left Eye Lopez. Remember her? Um, <laughs> Boys to Men. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you, man, those guys were awesome. And uh, I was Rico Suave in seventh grade, my boys to men. <laughs> and uh, here's, here's the best one. This is a single that will stand the test of time. Sometimes you would buy just a tape with one song on it, front and back. And my single was Whoop, There It Is. Uh, just <laughs> awesome, awesome song. It'll stand the test of time for sure. And, and, and there's one tape, though, that no one will ever, 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 ever get their hands on because I've locked it up, swallowed the key. You will not ever see this tape. And it is the tape of my very first sermon. And so I went to my hometown and uh, coming back from my freshman year of college and I was studying at Bible college. And uh, the way it worked when I was growing up for churches is you would have Sunday night church and nobody went and the pastor did not want to preach at Sunday night church. And so that was a perfect time to invite this young preacher boy to preach. The pastor could get a week off, and then I would get up there and, and you know, cut my teeth. And, and uh, one time I tried to, to listen to the, t- I couldn't even get through it. I just, I said, I don't even know if this is Christian, what I was saying. It was just bad, <laughs> bad, bad stuff. And, and yet, judging on what we read t- today, uh, this is Jesus' first hometown sermon. And judging on what we read today, mine actually went a little bit better than Jesus' did, believe it or not. Uh, Mine ended with, you blessed my heart, young man. That was really special. And Jesus' ended with, kill him. (laughs) That's how his ended. And so um, that's what we're going to look at today is reasons that you might want to kill Jesus. And, And fortunately over the years, I have learned, I've come to learn that 
that this isn't Hollywood, right? And so this is not about getting approval, uh, not about getting good ratings. It's about preaching and teaching and sharing what I'm convinced is the truth. And sometimes it leaves us wanting to kill Jesus. We don't really like this truth. And so as a church, we've been walking through this book, this gospel, which means good news, account of the life message ministry of Jesus. And Luke tells us at the very beginning of the book, if you want to flip on over there, you can check it out. Uh, Luke tells us that he's writing on behalf of this guy named Theophilus, specifically most excellent Theophilus. This is a great title. It lets us know that he had power, lets us know that he had access to money. And Theophilus was likely his, his benefactor. He gave him grant money to go and to do research and to study because Theophilus had heard about Jesus of Nazareth. And now he wants to know a little bit more about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so he funds Luke, who was a medical doctor. He was a physician and also very educated man, skilled in the Greek language as you look back at the original language. And he would have funded him, granted him, so that he could go and spend a substantial season of his life researching Jesus of Nazareth. He would have been interviewing eyewitnesses. He would have been taking uh, already existing sources and compiling them, confirming the stories and, and, and corroborating everything, making sure everything uh, is truth. The, te- the details do not uh, conflict. Because listen, if Luke gets it wrong, he's writing on behalf of most excellent Theophilus, someone with power. If Luke gets it wrong, he could just say, off with your head. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with my money. I have, I have power. And so what Luke is saying is corroborated eyewitness testimony. You can take this to the bank. This is truth. This is the message, the mission, uh, the, the, the person, Jesus Christ. We can trust this book. He's not trying to fudge things to make Jesus sound more divine than he actually was, like the Da Vinci Code would suggest. This is truth. Now, For the first time in our series, we've been going for weeks and weeks, months now actually, the first time we actually get to the ministry of Jesus with Luke's first recorded sermon of Jesus. Not his first sermon by any stretch, but his first recorded sermon. So read with me uh, verses 14 and and, and 15 of Luke chapter 4. It says, "And, And Jesus returned... He returns from where, you remember, he went into the wilderness and was tempted. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so Jesus comes into the region of Galilee, which is surrounding the the west side of the Sea of of Galilee. And it says that he comes in, in the power of Galilee. The, the Spirit. And something I pray for every single time I open God's Word and, and teach it or preach it is, is, Lord, I want Holy Spirit power. Josh power is weak sauce. We need Holy Spirit power in order for anything to happen in our hearts. And, and it says that Jesus comes in in the power of the Spirit. When he was baptized, it was this picture of the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit. Some people say Holy Spirit came in in the beginning part of Acts. No, Holy Spirit was right there with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, even in Luke. Luke is constantly concerned with the Holy Spirit. He comes in to the region, Holy Spirit power, and it says he travels around the region of Galilee and he teaches in their synagogues. Now, let me ask the the Christians in the room a question. Here's my question. Do you want to be like Jesus? You can nod yes. Yeah, if you want to. Okay, you want to be like Jesus. Good. Well, Jesus makes it irrefutable in the scriptures, 
that you are to minister. That you are a minister of the gospel. My ordination certificate, Ryan's ordination certificate, it says we have been ordained into gospel ministry. We are ministers of the gospel. But listen, it's not just us, by the way. The whole scripture, it tells us that that you are ministers. One of our values as a church is every member is a minister. That is irrefutable in the scriptures. You need to know that. Constantly Jesus will say, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me. And as the Father sent me, so I send you. So every single one of us, we're, we're, we're ministers, right? And so listen, this is not lazy church. We do not ever, ever, ever want to become lazy church. Where We come in, we sit down, talk to me, pastor, sing at me. Give me my spiritual fix. That's, that's not what we are at all. We expect every person to be on mission. We expect every person to be about the work of Jesus. We don't say that was Jesus, and that was the apostles, and now it's the pastors. No, what does it say in the scriptures? That our job as spiritual leaders is to equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry. God expects you to do ministry. You to be the, the, the minister. Last week we, we stood up here and we uh, presented new members and we read the membership covenant aloud and hopefully it was just very clear. You are to do the ministry. If we want real change, lasting change for our city, it's not going to be a couple of guys who went to seminary. It's going to be you all scattering out of this place after gathering. We gather and then we scatter and we go home and we go to neighborhoods and we go to Super Bowl parties. Yes, and we're going to win. And then we also go to our workplaces and to our break rooms. We go to all these places with the gospel, with the message of Jesus, with that hope on our tongues. And so catch this. Jesus taught in the synagogue and he expects you to minister like him. So, so synagogues were the primary means of his early ministry. It was one of his primary methods of ministry. Why? Because the synagogues were pre-existing structures in their culture. Let me say that again. Synagogues are pre-existing structures in their culture. They were all over the place. In, in Israel and even beyond, uh, where there were Jewish people scattered, the diaspora dispersed all over the, the known world at the time, wherever there were ten or more men, they said, that constitutes us having a synagogue. We're going to have a, a synagogue. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, synagogues are all over the place. They're ready-made structures, ready-made venues for him to do ministry. Jesus didn't come in and say, you know what, I- I'm doing a new thing. I got this great message about this new kind of love. And so let's create a new program. Let's fundraise for a a new building campaign. Let's come up with a a hip name and slap it on it like Jesus Joint. Come on out to the the Jesus Joint. We'll spend a lot of money. We'll, we'll, We'll do a lot of work to create something that comes across as separatist. You got to build a whole new thing and do a whole new thing. Now, what did Jesus do? He uses pre-existing structures within their culture, ready-made venues, physically and just in terms of the gathering, as his ministry center. And so, from time to time, I get people who say, you know, Josh, 
let's create like this new campaign and have a big budget campaign and let's, let's try to like do a big evangelism program. We'll create this, this monster and we can maybe have to build a building and we can have like the youth game room in there and pool tables. We can have a counseling center. We can do kids thing midweek there. And, and, and listen, that may happen at some point, Lord willing. Right? Eventually the church of Philippi and Ephesus and, and Corinth, they, eventually they build buildings and do that. But listen, we don't wait for that. Right? Jesus didn't wait. Okay, well, when we get some buildings with steeples and then, then we'll, then I'll, no, he doesn't wait for that, does he? He uses the pre-existing structure, pre-existing programs. Like, we have two apartment complexes right up the street that God has given us tremendous favor in with Pre-existing structures, community rooms, uh, office space, a counseling area. I mean, it's amazing. He's given that to us. We have biblical counseling there. We have our Kids Connect team is killing it, by the way. I mean, just killing it. Kids hearing the Bible, growing, memorizing Scripture. They're doing it not in some building because we don't own one, but in another pre-existing place. We used to do youth ministry at the community center right around the corner here. In their, their lower level, they have a recording studio. And they said, please come on in and, and maybe we can do some beats. I'm like, yeah, you want me rapping. That would be really good. You know, they didn't have instruments. So they had like mixing stuff. For, no, that would not be good. And, 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 and some of you, the pre-existing existing structure is, is the moms that we have. They go to the local parks. They don't say, well, someday we'll have a room where kids can come to us. We got moms killing it in local parks. Some of you, your pre-existing structure is, is your break room, by the way. You like to eat, and guess what? So do non-Christians, believe it or not. Could you believe that? They actually like to eat. God gave them a stomach. And you could sit down in that break room, and you could say, so uh, my church created this program called the Harvest Festival, because we can't call it Halloween. That would be awful. And so if you will come to our harvest festival, dress like a zombie, everybody else will be dressed like shepherds. And then we'll do a bait and switch and we'll tell you about Jesus and it'll be really awkward. You want to come to that? Or you could say, hey, let me just tell you what's happened in my life. Man, this crazy thing happened this weekend. Or I went to church this weekend. This, this thing the pastor said was like killing me. It's just in my heart. I can't get it off my... Just organic, just natural. Again, not that we'll never do stuff. Not that we'll ever never have a building. I don't know. But we don't wait. We don't wait. You work at a grocery store and you're stocking shelves. You're the chaplain of that grocery store. You live in a neighborhood. You're the chaplain of that neighborhood. You're having parties. You're having people over. You're doing Super Bowl. You're talking about Jesus in your, in your, your dorm room, right? Pre-existing structures, ready-made structures. As you follow church history, it explodes when persecution came heavy on the church and they go all over the land and they just can't help but talk about it because it has so changed their lives. That's what it looks like. That's what Jesus is doing. Synagogues? Okay. God in his sovereign hand, his providential hand, has ordained things such that these buildings have now emerged where they would gather and be taught. And we need to understand synagogues. I'm going to spend a little more time here because the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see a lot of synagogue activity. He spends a lot of time in the, the synagogues. They were not the temple, by the way. There was one 
temple. Synagogues don't replace the temple. Remember the, the temple, uh, for those of you who don't know the whole story, started as a tent. We call it uh, the, the tabernacle when God was leading uh, through Moses, his people, out of slavery in Egypt and through the, the wilderness. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Here's some law and here's what it's going to look like. Here's some specifications for this tent. I'm going to reside right in the middle in this thing uh, called the, the Holy of, of Holies. And I'm going to be there and then we're going to move around and you're going to follow the cloud. It's going to be crazy. And, and God's people would come in and they would make sacrifices and offerings and they would worship and incense and, and feasts and, and, and all this stuff in the, the tabernacle. They get to the promised land and what happens? We've got to make a permanent structure at this point. So they, under King Solomon, make the, the, the temple. But if you remember, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And so they are scattered all over the place. Some people go back with the Babylonians. Some go all over the Mediterranean world. And what you'll see is that these small groups of people who feared the Lord would gather together. And they would talk about the Lord. And a, a, a priest or a careful Bible teacher would read the scripture, and then expound upon the, the scripture. And in time, they said, well, let's make a place where we can gather formally and, and, and do that. And it makes sense to do it on the, the Sabbath. So they do it on the Sabbath. And the Greek word uh, where we get the word synagogue means a gathering place. So they, they gathered. Philo, uh, a philosopher from Alexandria, said they were houses of instruction. So teaching like this, is something that's rooted in, in, in history, in church history, which we believe uh, Isra- uh, Israel and, and Judaism is a part of that. And, and, and that emerged throughout the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament and the intertestamental period, these places called synagogues. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it tell us that, that, that there was a synagogue. It doesn't reference anywhere in the Old Testament a, a synagogue. God didn't command them to do this. God didn't say the synagogue will have holy utensils, holy hardware. The synagogues will have curtains like this. They will have special altars. Sacrifices were not made there. Feasts, biblically, were not there. It wasn't in competition with the temple. They kept going back, pilgrimaging to the one temple. These were places of instructions. Kind of like this, just a simple room, nothing spectacular, where they would gather. And as you read throughout the book, of Acts, after Jesus ascends, the apostles, what do they do? They go to synagogues, pre-existing venues for, for teaching. In the book of Acts, you have Paul going to synagogues in Salamis, and Antioch, Thessalonica, Corinth, Berea. He keeps going. Was his practice, as was the practice of Jesus, to go to the synagogue. God, in his perfect providential hand, is saying, these are going to be here as a pre-existing Structure, And you have pre-existing structures in your life that God says, I want you to use that. I'm praying that he's jogging your mind right now and some things are coming to mind. So just a little insight into the synagogues that the Jewish people had, that Jesus went to, that the apostles went to. Now, we read on and Jesus goes to, of all the synagogues, he finally gets to his hometown synagogue. Read with me 16 through 21. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as was his custom, so he did it. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so he rolled up the scroll 
He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, Jesus is traveling all over Nazareth, or all over Galilee. He finally lands in his hometown of Nazareth. Remember, he had been brought up there. So he had his uh, mother Mary and his uh, kind of adoptive type father, Joseph. They were from Nazareth, and they go to Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy, um, to go be registered at the census. And then she goes into labor, and they have the baby right there. Uh, they were in Bethlehem for upwards of potentially two years. We know that because when Herod got threatened by the rumor of this young king, he says, kill all the kids two years and under. So he could have been upwards of two years, uh, and the wise men had come at a later time. And so God then warns Joseph in a dream, you've got to get out of there because Herod is going to kill all of the babies. He was threatened, all the babies two years old and younger. And so then they go into Egypt. And they stay there until God again comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Herod's dead, you're good. And so when Herod dies, he goes back to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus would be raised. He would be called a Nazarene. It's fulfilling prophecy. And so here he is. He's back, the Nazarene. He's back, and he gets a a warm reception. And people most definitely heard about all our hometown boy Jesus has been up to about his teaching about his miracles imagine it'd be like somebody uh from your hometown who who gets famous and you know about them you track them on twitter and you follow them online you're watching them like many people in this area know about the pride of hyde park manny del carmen played on the 2007 world series champion red sox but first he went to west roxbury high where this church first used to uh, used to meet and, and, and he comes back, and people want to get his autograph and hang out with him. He's the pride of Hyde Park. Well, Jesus is the pride of Nazareth. He is warmly welcome. You would imagine the synagogue would be slammed that Sunday. And it starts out really, really well, but ends with them trying to kill homeboy, in the truest sense of the word, trying to kill Jesus. And understand that this is a, a foreshadowing and a reminder of how his three-year ministry will finish up. It's going to finish up with kill him, crucify him, him hanging on a cross. In fact, in those days, synagogues were built so that they were facing Jerusalem, where the cross would be. So the back door, the front door coming in, the back door going out, you're going out towards Jerusalem. So the, the, the one teaching is teaching towards Jerusalem. And so if Jerusalem is to your east, you're, you're facing the east. If you're on the, 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 the east side of Jerusalem, you're, you're preaching and facing towards the, the west. If you're on the north side, you're preaching and teaching and, and, and doing also south towards Jerusalem. Jesus, over and over and over again, as he's throughout Galilee, is teaching, preaching towards the cross. The cross has to be in view. It's going to end with, I'm laying it all down for you, for your sin, because of my deep love for you. I'm here to die for you. That's his mission. And what does he say? They give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls it. Again, God's providential hand. He loves to just guide things perfectly. All these details of the beginning of Jesus' life coming together in a way that only God could. 
and Jesus gets handed. Uh, we've been in a three-year rotation, and now we're in Isaiah. That's how they did it, by the way. They would do these three-year reading rotations. We land in Isaiah. Oh, perfect. That's all about me. And he unrolls it, Isaiah 61, and he reads this messianic prophecy. Look at uh, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a prophecy that they all would have known about the Savior, about the Messiah. Everyone in the room would have known this prophecy. And verse 20 says, he rolls up the scroll and he sits down. And and all the eyes are fixed on Jesus. Now, the custom in the synagogue was that the teacher would stand to read in honor of the word of God and then would sit down to teach, which I guess you know, goes pretty long. You think I go long sometimes. They, got, they get to sit down, so they can go extra long. Their legs don't get tired. And, and so he sits down, he expounds upon the, 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 the scripture. What he's not doing is rolling it up, reading it, sitting down and waiting for a minute and waiting for the encore chant. One more song, one more song. Okay, well, thanks, guys. No, well, actually, this is about me. No, it was customary. He would read it. He would sit down, and he would say this. He says, today, I am the sermon. Today, what you have heard is about me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're waiting for. Now, verse 22, look at it. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So I've heard this taught in a way that I I think is biblically wrong uh, numerous times. I've heard people say, well, the the Nazarene said, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, come on, he's the son of a carpenter. We know him. We know his family. We wouldn't believe that. Are you serious? No, you're not the Messiah. That's how some people interpret that. But I don't think that's what is being said here because if you look at the the context, the context right before it is all spoke what? They spoke well of him and they they marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Wow. This This is crazy. That's Joseph's son. This is, this is incredible. He's the son of that humble carpenter who built my table in my dining room. He's not highly educated. He's not highly trained, yet he's, he's teaching with such skill and power and authority. He shouldn't be able to teach like this. This is amazing. Could it be that the Messiah is coming from my hometown? You ever heard the saying, Quit while you're ahead. So sometimes when I'm, I'm, I'll work with younger preachers, and I know I'm a young preacher, but younger preachers, and, and I'll say something like, okay, it's better to land the plane while they're still breathing <laughs> rather than waiting for the oxygen to run out. Or, or I'll say something like, it, it's better to have a short and powerful sermon than have a long sermon that was powerful at one point, <laughs> and then it kind of... It just went on way too long and it finished kind of rough. Or it's better to, to finish, leave, leave them wanting more than begging you to stop. You know what I mean? And so I'll kind of, that's good counsel. But would you believe it? Jesus doesn't take my counsel. It's, it's unbelievable. He's crushing it. I mean, it's amazing. They're marveling. 
whoa, could it be? This is spectacular. This is incredible. Jesus, land the plane. Just land the plane. Finish right there. Leave him wanting more. Don't give him too much right there. That's, that's good. But he had to keep going, doesn't he? He just, he keeps going. Here's the thing. He wants to make sure that they know who he really is, what he's really up to. And today he wants to make sure that you know who he really is and what he's, he's really up to, even if it makes you want to kill him. Listen, you need to catch this. This is, this is so big. Listen, it is better for you to hate the real Jesus than to love some kind of fake Jesus. It is so much better for you to hate who Jesus actually was than to love this Jesus that you make up to suit your own desires. That's what they were doing. They they, they had become so ethnocentric. We're the chosen people of God. He's called us. This is amazing. He's making us awesome so that we can look around at the rest of the world and say, we're it. We're gods. We're special. We're amazing. We're the best nation and would you believe it joseph's son from our nation is going to help us to lead the revolution or 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 they've been oppressed over the years by a variety of nations throughout generations from uh, the egyptians to the philistines to the assyrians to the babylonians the, the the persians and now the romans and they're saying, but now Joseph's son is going to rise up and he's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to even lift our taxes, right? No more taxes. He's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to make us not poor anymore. He's going to make us not miserable anymore. That's Joseph's son. Or Joseph's son, he's going to be our revenge on behalf of us. We've been right all along. We've been living by the law. We've been living by the the book. And all those God-forsaken sinners out there, Joseph's going to rise up and get revenge on them. He's going to show them who's boss. He's one of us. He's Nazareth. He's the pride of Hyde Park. He's the pride of, of Nazareth. At this point, they loved Jesus. But the Jesus that they loved was this figment of their imagination. It was a projection upon him. And how about you? How about your Jesus? My Jesus will make my life really easy. My Jesus will give me that relationship. My Jesus will give me financial security. I heard it on TV from a gold throne. My Jesus will give me that job, that grade. My Jesus, if I go to church, will keep my kids in check, keep them out of trouble. My Jesus will never let a loved one die. My Jesus will approve my political stance. My Jesus will affirm, 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 affirm me and pat me on the back all the time. You see how we do this? It might not be the real Jesus. And so far from what they've heard, yeah, yeah, I'm twisting that to that, that. That's everything I want Jesus to be. That's everything I expected him to, to, to be. And Jesus looks around the room and he realizes something's off. Maybe by the look on their faces, the smiling, the happiness, the whoa, whispering, could it be? Or maybe just by the way that Jesus looked into Peter. It says he knew what was going on in the depths of his 
heart. However he knew, he knew, and he said, they don't understand me at all. I could land the plane, but I have to keep on. And he goes on, all right, doesn't he? Look at verses 23 through 27. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do some miracles for us, Jesus. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and, the name, and none of them was cleansed but only Nahum the Syrian. So this is very interesting. It's just a few more sentences added on to his sermon. And now watch what happens. Verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They weren't like, huh, that sounds a little interesting. Wrath was upon them. And they rose up and drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus too. What just happened? It went from a room full of, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? We love Jesus. You ever done that at youth camp? And they're going back and forth and back and forth. What just happened it went from happy and love Jesus, he's awesome, to run him out of the synagogue. We want to throw him off the cliff, but he slips away. What happened was what we call a loaded statement. So it's kind of like imagine a husband and wife, they're on a date, hypothetically speaking, <laughs> and they're on a date, and things are going awesome, and there's laughter and great conversation. And maybe even at one point in the date, it's going so well that she just lays a big one right on his face in front of everybody. No shame. I just love this man. He's awesome. But then at some point, if you were a fly on the wall, you heard this statement, you would have thought nothing of it. But he says something like, babe, that reminded me of Jessica right there. (laughs) And you think, compliment? Jessica's pretty cool, I guess, right? But wifey says, you did not just bring up Jessica right now. You did not just compare me to Jessica right now. Jessica? I'm like, what happened? What, what happened was a, a loaded statement. Apparently there was some context there that we don't know about, right? And, and that's what happens here with, with Jesus. Loaded, loaded statement that, that Jesus, you're the best. Jesus, you must die. Well, I just said a couple more sentences. What happened? First of all, Knowing that they are misunderstanding him, what, is, what does Jesus do? He skips into the future tense. In verse 23, he says, you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. So we're about a year into Jesus' ministry. Luke could have picked uh, any, any sermon. He picks this one for a very specific reason. So we're about a year actually into the ministry of Jesus, even though this is when we first jump into his ministry here. And, and, and he's speaking about two years after that when he's going to be on the cross, when they're going to say, physician, Heal yourself. 
you're dying. I mean, if you're really God, I just heal yourself and, and hop off the cross, heal up your, your wounds. Verse 24, he says, I say to you that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Can you imagine this? We're singing your praises, and now you're twisting us to be your enemies? Where's this coming from, all these random jabs? And, and then he reminds them of two biblical stories of Elijah and Elisha, two prophets, back-to-back prophets. Uh, the Elijah story uh, comes from First King. He reminds them of a time when there was a three-and-a-half-year drought, a very severe famine because plants aren't growing, there's no rain, and, and, and God sends the prophet Elijah to none of them, his people, passes over them and goes to Zarephath. God skips over them to a non-Israelite land, to a non-people of God land, specifically to a widow from Zarephath. In other words, people are dying, specifically God's people and specifically God's widows and, and orphans. Yet God chooses to save a widow who was non-Israelite. She was a Phoenician. That's story number one. And story number two is the story of Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 5. He reminds him of, of when the people of Israel were in this terrible, crazy pandemic of, of leprosy. It was, it was just insane. Leprosy, you get sores all over your body and you would just basically rot till you die. It was terrible. There were colonies of lepers because they just had to be together because they didn't want to infect everybody else. And so Jesus reminds him, or all these people, he says, remember, God, through Elisha, brings his mercy not to Israel struggling with this pandemic, but to a foreign king and a wicked king at that. And so at these two stories, they're starting to get it. It's very loaded, and they're full of wrath. Why? Because Jesus did not fit their fake Messiah mold. And so they rise up to, to kill him. And, and, and I want to just give you quickly three reasons you might want to kill Jesus. Three reasons why they wanted to and maybe why you want to and people in our culture want to. And if you're a note taker, just quick three, three words. Different, dirty, demeaning. So the first one, Jesus was different than they were expecting. Here's what I mean. He himself was different, and the people that he deeply ministered to were different. How was he himself different? Well, largely they were expecting a political movement. But Jesus didn't arrive on Fox News to tell everybody, I'm here. Where does he go? He goes to the poor and the scandalous of the day, to shepherds, and that's the announcement which would have been the equivalent of the dirty, rotten MTV, right? That's where he makes this announcement. Not the holy, somewhat weirdly Christian, I don't know, Fox News. See, Jesus, they wanted, was like an Abraham. He was both political and spiritual. Abraham fathered a nation and a nation that would honor God. That's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to set up rules wanted laws that would make everybody else to be like us, to act just like us, to enforce holiness. 
so that we can show we've been right all along and you're our political slash spiritual leaders. And they've been trying to make Jesus king over and over and over again as, a, as you follow the life of Jesus. They try to make him king. So the, the Pharisees, remember, they're deeply religious people. They say, hey, hey, Jesus, you know Caesar's trying to make us pay taxes. Should we do that? That was a little bit of a trap. And what does he say? He says, hey, anybody got a quarter? Can I borrow, can I borrow a quarter? He says, whose face is that on there? George Washington? Not mine. He says, give to George what is George and give to me what is mine. Pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. I'm not here to be Caesar. I'm here to reign and rule over all things, not this portion of the world. I'm not here to play politics. I'm not here to legislate morality. That doesn't work. It just doesn't ever work. The places where the Christian faith is exploding is where it's against the law to be a Christian. The places where uh, Christianity is thriving and, and, and it's just blowing up is where it's against the law. Not here in America, it's declining because we have the freedoms that we have. Praise God for them. So listen, it's historically proven it is not the answer for me to be political Jesus. Instead, what I do, I don't legislate morality. I change people's hearts. I don't force them to do this, 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 and this. I change them from the inside out. I don't come in like Washington on a high horse, literally, leading a, a militia and a, a new political regime. I love George Washington. I love him. I've been watching this show on Netflix, History. It's awesome. I've been following George Washington. I like that guy. But that's not Jesus. Proud to be American, but that's not Jesus. In, in fact, in, in these two Old Testament stories, Jesus would have bypassed America. He, he bypasses Israel in a sense. And he says, and I, I'm offering, it's not just you, it's the whole world, all nations, the people that you hate even. For us, that might be those terrorists. I've got grace for them. Are you kidding me? Jesus says, I've got grace for them. Think about some of the things that Jesus talks about. The story of the Good Samaritan. Samaritans? Jesus, for real? The Syrophoenician's daughter. Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. <laughs> oh, no, he didn't. Just say that right now. Right. Do you see this? Over and over and over again, Jesus deconstructs this ethnocentric Israel that was happening, where it's all about us. It's all about us. He says, no, it's all about me changing all people. Go back a couple of weeks in our, our, our study through Luke, and what does John the baptizer say? He says, all flesh, all flesh will see the salvation of God. Even those who are different from you. Jesus kills the idea that Christianity means that all people are going to look the same, dress the same, sing the same, act the same. One of the greatest mistakes, I believe, of 20th century Christian global missions was the Americanization of people in other parts of the world. We'll bring them the gospel. We'll bring the gospel to Africa. And we'll get them to sing, glory, glory, hallelujah. And wear a suit and tie. And don't dare let them touch a drum because Jesus didn't play drums. Even though I know they're playing drums. No. We're going to try to make them like an American expression of, of, of Christianity. Come on. Instead, we can let the gospel seep into 
their reality. And they can express it in the way that is culturally appropriate for them. So they don't have to dress like an American pastor back then, which probably suit and tie, not so much now necessarily. They can wear their native garb and honor God that way. They can sing loud and they can clap and they can dance and they can play their drums and it doesn't have to look like America, right? But centered on, on, on Jesus. On the flip side, we have people from all over the world come in and join us for worship and and, and we love that. It's one of the most amazing things about this neighborhood is just how diverse it is. And, and let me say this. We request grace from you if that's, if that's you. Now, we're trying to increasingly reflect that diversity and that expressiveness. But just because people worship like white boys, you know, and they put their hands in their pockets and they kind of sway a little bit and they can't really clap on beat, you know, and they don't just doesn't mean that they don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're not full of the Spirit of God. And it, go, it, goes, it goes both ways. We celebrate differences, and we want to extend grace to all people, both, both sides, right? Just because we don't clap necessarily. I'm open to it. It'd be cool. It doesn't mean that we're not loving the Lord and passionate about the Lord. Just, just different, right? Jesus extends grace to people who are different, and they did not like that at all. This is for us. This is for people like us. They're going to look like us. They need to be just like us. Here's the second thing that really ticked them off, made them want to kill Jesus, was that Jesus went after the dirty. Went after the, the dirty. So to the Jewish people, Gentiles were dirty, dark, no regard for God. Nahum, the, the Syrian official, uh, was a, if, you, if you read the, the history on him, his story was a total scumbag. I mean, just a, he was awful. And, and, and Jesus is looking at the people in his hometown, and he says, yeah, the, the message went to, to Nahum. He's saying, I, I realize you like me now, but when you find out my grace goes out to the dirty, you're not going to like me. But let me just go ahead and get that out of the gate up front. It, it's going to go out to people that you would never think my grace is available to, like the woman caught in adultery. Really? She committed adultery. She deserved to die. No, grace is for her too. Zacchaeus, he was ripping us off. I'm going to his house. I'm going to show grace to him. The criminal beside me on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He did nothing good his entire life. I mean, he's dying in a couple minutes. You're going to heaven with me because you turned to me in, in faith, not based on your works. The apostles were fishermen and tax collector. And yet, I'm going to make you leaders in this thing. I will give grace to repeat offenders. Peter, think about him. Over and over and over and over again, he just puts his foot in his mouth and God says, grace, 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 grace. You're like a rock, Peter. It infuriated them. It didn't make any sense to them. And and you know what? Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. I mean, I've been faithful for years, God. And now them? He or she comes to Jesus and grace and acceptance and forget their past. You You know what they did? Come on. 
They're just a bandwagon jumper. They just came on. I was with you from almost the beginning when it was hard to follow Jesus, when there wasn't a lot of Christians around. Dirty people that you wouldn't expect. And that was Jesus. And it ticked them off, as you can imagine. Didn't make any sense to them. And then final reason why you might want to kill Jesus, there's many more, is this. For the proud people, Jesus comes across as demeaning, doesn't he? For the people of Israel, for, for the Israelites specifically in Nazareth there, and, and for religious leaders, you see him constantly confronting them. We've lived our entire lives trying to, to honor God. We've sought to follow the law, to, to, to be good. But Jesus, by you offering salvation to all people who have not done that, you're disregarding my spiritual credentials. It's like Jesus looks at your resume and goes, filing cabinet. Think about the, the Apostle Paul. What does he say? He, he lists his spiritual resume. And he says, it's like filthy rags. Jesus looks at your resume. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. It doesn't buy you my favor. The gospel is not you're good enough, therefore. And they felt like that was demeaning. We've, we've been faithful. We're the people of Israel. You're disregarding our spiritual resume, my deeds, my accomplishments. And Jesus says, listen, what you need is, is me. You don't earn my favor. Don't be self-reliant. You're Jesus-reliant. We walk around and we try to promote ourselves all the time, let people know all the good things that we've done. And Jesus says, if you're going to promote anything, promote me. Paul says, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in Jesus and the cross. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, does it? In a, in a world that's about earning and about economy, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. A world that's about self-promotion to the top, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 118. I, I love this passage. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, for those with strong spiritual resume by Jesus disregarding that seems like folly like foolishness like seriously look how good I am and you become proud and puffed up it seems like foolishness but to those who need the Lord and recognize that I need the Lord and I need his cross it's not foolishness it's the most amazing thing of all time when you're on the other side of different when you're on the other side of, of dirty, when you're on the other side of demeaning, it's not, I want to kill Jesus. It's, I want to hug Jesus. I want to fall at his feet and, and, and worship him. It made some people hate him. It made other people love him. This news is amazing. If you're the different that Jesus goes to, this is amazing news, isn't it? I'm not like them. I've definitely been on the outside. I'm not the spiritual, religious type. This is amazing news for me too. I've got a really bad past. I'm dirty. I've done a lot of really, I mean, messed up stuff in secret and public. I, people, I'm bad. Jesus is for you. It's amazing, isn't it? You don't want to kill Jesus. You want to hug Jesus. You got a terrible spiritual resume. You're not demeaned by it. You're saying, are you, 
Are you kidding me? Promotion into your family? What? I, I don't even, this is amazing, amazing, amazing news. And so let's just close by going back to the beginning of a sermon and reading those passages again in context. Look at 18 and 19 one more time. In light of all that, he had said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Line by line through that, if you are the person on the other side, you're the poor. You're spiritually poor and destitute. And he says, this is really good news for you. For them, it makes them want to kill me, but for you, it's really good news. For the captives. Some of us are captive to addictions, captive to pornography, captive in a relationship, captive to just this pattern of failure over and over and over and over again. He says, no, this is really good news for you. My grace, when it gets into your heart, will change you forever. You're not captive anymore. Recovery of sight to the blind. I've been spiritually blind. I can't see. I'm not like Israel. I don't understand God. It's weird for me. I don't know if I can believe that. He says, let me help you to see. It's good news for you, isn't it? Those who are oppressed, people who are down and out in our society, we overlook and they get what they deserve. They didn't work hard. They're not educated. They didn't. He says, no, no, no. For, for them, it's liberty. It's liberating. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So for those people who are on the other side, God's favor is upon you. Why? Because you're Israel? Because you've grown up going to church? Because you've done a lot of good stuff? Because you're civically minded? You're active? That's not why God's favor is upon you. Those are good things. What an honor to be a person from Israel. That would have been amazing. I believe God's promises are still for them. But listen, it's for all people, for all flesh. The Lord's favor can be on all people. Should we trust in Jesus? Should we hear this truth and say, he is amazing. The real Jesus, that's what I want. That's who I want. I want to I follow him. Listen, this is only the beginning of our journey through the ministry of Jesus. And we just see this instance right here. And it tells us that people are going to respond to Jesus. That Jesus demands a response. There is no neutral with regards to Jesus. You either reject him or you accept him. You are for me or you are against me. There's no middle road. And so for all of us today, the question is, do you receive Jesus for who he is or do you reject Jesus for who he is? But let it be clear who he is. He's not necessarily who you want him to be, who you want to project on him. This is who Jesus is. It's grace. It's not you earned it. It's he did all the work. He came. He lived the perfect life you could never live. He died the death that he did not deserve in your place so that if you will trust in his life and his death as the payment for your sin, you can be at right standing with God. doesn't end there, though. He resurrects to life. 
He's alive and well, and he's active. He wants a relationship with you even today. Soon we're going to close the book of Luke. And Jesus is still here. He's still alive. He's still well, and he calls you to follow him for who he actually is. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, I give my friends in the room to you, Lord. Thank you for the truth of Jesus. God, I pray that we would see Jesus for who he is. God, by your spirit, give us spiritual eyes to see. Do that work in us, Lord. God, help us to respond in a way that would be prompted by your spirit and honoring to you. God, help us to love the real Jesus. Change us from the inside out. We want to be on your mission. We want to be about carrying this truth to the world in our pre-existing structures that you've given us. But however you're speaking to your people this morning, help them to respond. And now we worship and glorify and honor you. In his name we pray. Amen.